Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Chatra, the podcast about all things Catra. As you all are aware, the biggest talk in the cat podcasting sphere right now is whether or not we can take our cats to brunch. And so I thought today we would spend some time talking about would you take Catra to brunch? With me today, as always, is my co-host, Lauren Fates. Lauren, would you take Catra to brunch? Hello, hello. Yes, uh, once again, this is Chatra, the only Chatra podcast. And uh, I, I, in fact, would not take Catra to brunch. I would be afraid she would jump up on the table and begin lapping up milk with her face. And I would uh, be very offended by her table manners. Uh, that, it, that is me saying I would not take Catra to brunch. Okay, stunning commentary from Lauren Fates. Let's go to, obviously, our third co-host and co-founder, Bailey Myers. Bailey? Bailey. Oh, we didn't get Bailey back, did we? Oh. All right, I guess we should do our regular show now. <sighs> Shoot, let's do the old show. <laughs> I Okay, I literally did Google cat podcasts, and this is... <laughs> This is what there's a cat podcast called Cat Explorer, and it talks about places that you can and can't take your cat. So the latest episode is Can You Take Your Cat on a Kayak? And then there's episodes about brunch and leashes and all this stuff. So. Oh my gosh. I remember going to the grocery store when I was a kid, and like, I don't think they have this anymore, but there used to be lots of like independent brochures and magazines on the way into the grocery store that were free. Do you remember Cat Fancy? Yes. I miss Cat Fancy. They have really good cover photos. I wonder where the Cat Fancy cover photographer is now. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to Shira Progressive of Power. This is not Chatra, but this is Eric. And this is Lauren, and I think it's probably for the best. I think so too. I am so excited with our guest today. We have two guests yet again. Uh, Lauren, how long have we been saying that it's so sad and strange that there's not other Shira podcasts out there? Speak for yourself. I was feeling awesome here on the top of this lonely hill. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Look, it's a big universe and it's a big table. And and really the only other people talking about Shira were some of those weirdos over at He-Man.org. I don't actually know them. I'm sure they're lovely people. I think they're great. Even though they did say we would often read things into the show that weren't really there. You know what? That's fine. That's your opinion. I'm not bitter about it. Anyway. I can tell. What if there was another podcast just about She-Ra, Lauren? It would be really great if that were true because we're winding down our show. We're getting really close to the end of season five and we're trying to get to 100 episodes and then we're going to say goodbye. So what will people listen to? Well, I what if I'm just making this up off the top of my head. What if there was a show called Podcast of Power hosted by two people named Nero and Jane? And what if those people were actually on our call right now? Uh, it's a shame that you're making that up because it sounds really great. What if we just wished really hard and made it happen? <laughs> Lauren, have I got a surprise for you. What? Please welcome to the show, Nero and Jane, the co-hosts of Podcast of Power, a Shira rewatch podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Hello. Heck yes. Welcome. We're so excited to meet you. Excited to be here. Yeah, this is very fun. So, I, I found you on Twitter through just like Googling She-Ra podcast, which I do about <laughs> once a week. Being a creep. It, well, admittedly, yeah. <laughs> admittedly looking for people that I can recommend our show to. Uh, and then this popped up and I was like, oh, yes. It, 
if I'm honest, you guys are, are younger than us, and I just feel like you're a lot more the target audience of She-Ra, so I'm really excited to have your voices in the podcast world. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, we're, we're maybe a little bit older than the target audience, but we're definitely a bit closer to uh, the sort of vibe of the show, for sure. Than us olds <laughs> over here. So mm. your journey just started. You just covered, uh, well, maybe a week or so ago, you did uh, No Princess Left Behind. So we are, we're on season one with you guys, which is incredible because, yeah, if, if you're doing a rewatch or you just kind of want to experience the show again from the start podcast of power is here for you and i listened to your episode and you two are really incredibly insightful i really like the analysis that you uh you bring to it well thank you very much yeah our our show is sort of you know jane and i we we finished uh season five uh pretty soon after it came out i watched it with with another friend literally the the night it uh, it came up i was like i'm just gonna shotgun this whole thing i can't be spoiled i'm just going to main light it immediately um and it's just sort of kind of set my brain on fire forever by how good it was yeah i think at this point between the two of us we've rewatched it since season five maybe five or six times wow that's and awesome. what made you what made you decide you wanted to do a podcast I mean, we just couldn't shut up about it. And I think we just both decided, well, if we're going to be talking about this incredible show forever, uh, we might as well record our thoughts on it and put it out into the world. So what kind of drew you to She-Ra in in the first place? I know when we talked on Twitter, you said you weren't, uh, I mean, you're a little younger, so yeah, you weren't around for the first iteration like I was. Like, was it the kind of the creative team or or the story it was telling or or what brought you in? Um, I feel like for me, um, a lot of it was, um, one, I'm a really big fan of Noel Stevenson's stuff. Um, her stuff is is really, really good. Um, big fan of Nimona. That was one of the first, like, um, graphic novels I ever read, actually. And also, at uh, you know, a while back when um, Prom Night came out, which is probably not the name of the episode, but I always call it Prom Night. <laughs> um, it feels right. It feels correct, and that episode just the 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 level of gayness in that episode really drew me in personally. <laughs> I love that it is. That's got to be the standout of season one, right? It's so good. It's that and and promise, right? I think that both of those episodes are just sort of the 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 heights of season one. Um, for me, yeah, it was very similar. I. I was like, I wasn't actually interested when I heard about the the She-Ra reboot because I had tried watching the Voltron show and just completely fell off before the first season. Like I was bored to tears, um, and so when I heard that you know they were doing another sort of '80s reboot thing, I was like, ah, well, I mean, maybe I won't watch it. Maybe I will. Um, and then I just, yeah, I just sort of saw a bunch of stuff from Princess Prom, and I was like, okay, hang on, what is going on in this show? What is, what exactly is is up with this? I gotta, I gotta see this uh, a little bit more closely. So I just checked it out, and you fell in love. It feels to me like that's the episode where the show kind of gains sure footing of itself. Does that make sense? Like it's, it's very confident in doing something that most other like action adventure cartoons wouldn't do. Yeah, I'd I agree with that. Yeah, I would. I would agree. It is definitely sort of a, a turning point in the show for sure. Lauren, what's your favorite episode from season one? Do you even remember? We haven't rewatched this yet. I kind of started to, but 
Oddly enough, so Princess Prom is obviously up there. I think in hindsight, my favorite is probably in the shadows of Mysticore. Um, it's really, it shows us Kestispella for the first time. It shows us locations that are very important to the rest of the show. And I think it talks a lot about mental health and the importance of self-care in a way that I don't think children's shows often do. So both in terms of what it sets up for the lore, but also the sort of friendship message. Looking back on that, it's a favorite. Yeah, I, I would agree, definitely. Yeah, we, we liked uh, In the Shadows of Mysticore quite a bit on rewatch. Yeah, that's it's one of the stronger Shadow Weaver episodes, too. It really starts to dig into a lot of the meat of like her as a character and the way that she's affected um, Adora. <laughs> I didn't even put Shadow Weaver in my answer, but it is a huge Shadow Weaver episode, and she's pretty much our favorite character. So I feel like I tricked <laughs> us into talking about Shadow Which Weaver. We, oh. have, we have taken flack for because sometimes in the excited way that we talk about her, it sounds like we are letting her off the hook for being so evil. <laughs> Oh no, no we... don't worry. Our our podcast is about 40% Shadow Weaver by volume, so that's fine. <laughs> yeah, we we love uh... Shadow Weaver too. She's just such a fantastically well-realized character. I would I say just it... Oh, go ahead. Uh, just if you ever do feel compelled to go watch the original Shira, which I'm not saying you should, but Shadow Weaver is the only character in that show that feels like maybe she belongs in this current iteration. Like there's just there's something about the way even in the 80s like her presence was so demanding that the show kind of warped around her to be like awesome around her you know we uh we actually did watch one episode of of the original shira a while back uh just for a lark uh it's the one where it's the one where skeletor feeds hordak a pie that makes him start disappearing <laughs> Uh, yeah, that one. That one's quite good. I love the bit where Hordak just turns into a plane um, and then dies. <laughs> Lauren and I joke about that episode all the time because it led to a string of episodes where I would ask her about pie, and she got so frustrated with me. <laughs> That's how we're going to end our podcasting career, though. I'm going to eat a pie and disappear, and Eric's going to turn into a plane and die. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, could be worse uh, it's, the, it's the way it's the good way to go out right, <laughs> right. i mean in 2020 I i'll take i'll take the narrative and anytime mm-hmm. well nero jane i want to thank you both for jumping so far ahead in your rewatch to talk about the like kind of penultimate episode of the show with us i said on twitter i'm sure when by the time you get back to it your opinions will have changed by all your analysis but maybe this is a little sneak preview into the future of podcast of power yeah, we've we've actually we actually talked about this episode, Failsafe, uh, in the episode we just released today, as of this recording, uh, covering the Beacon, because I think that I mean I love Failsafe. I would say you know I have two. I basically have to make two episode lists of like top five things now because there's top five episodes of the show before season five and then after season five. Because if I include season five in just one list, it's basically all season five episodes in my top five. I the 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 finale season of this show is is absolutely uh, phenomenal in my opinion. Before we get too far into it, though, Eric, why don't you hit us with the episode summary? 
failsafe, boy, this is a meaty episode. So the A story is Shadow Weaver and Castaspella lead Adora, Bo, Glimmer, Milog, and Catra into the bowels of Mysticor, where the a uh, a failsafe is said to live that can disrupt the magic of the heart of Etheria and kind of restore power to the people, so to speak. Um, this is this is Arxia that they were told about in the last episode. Of course, nothing is ever easy, and uh, the chipped Micah and the other, I guess, Mysticorians are on their case, and uh, they're going to have a cool wizard battle before the episode's over. Of course, the real drama here is that Shadow Weaver um, is pressing Adora to accept the failsafe because she knows something no one else does, that taking the failsafe might kill you. It would kill anybody, except maybe Shira would survive, but even Shadow Weaver's not quite so sure of that. Uh, but whoever releases the failsafe is probably in mortal danger, and so Adora has to decide whether she will take this upon herself. Of course, we know Adora, and we know that she will. Uh, Catra is very upset about this, and there's a lot of talk about uh, why does it always have to be you? Why don't you ever think about what you want? There's a lot of pain in this episode that I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, in the B story, we have uh, Entrapta and Swiftwind going off to crack uh, Horde Prime's chip code because Entrapta realizes that the more the longer chips are on people, the more integrated they become in their like nervous systems and you can't really break them off one by one. So her hope is to override the chip network and free all of the chipped Ethereans. So she does kind of manage to figure out what she needs to do that and in the process runs into the real Hordak who remembers her and lets her go and there's a very uh, again, another kind of painful moment in a, a sad reunion, and uh, I think that is that's that's this episode. Catra kind of stalks off at the end because she's so upset at Adora, and Adora is ready to face perhaps her final destiny alone. That, that was a great episode. Summary. <laughs> Thank you. I felt good about that one. I think maybe having you two here is helping me channel my powers. <laughs> Well, we're happy to be here then. Yeah, this episode uh, really does have a lot of, like, huge emotional buildup. Obviously, as the, as the sort of penultimate finale episode, they're going to need to put all their cards on the table so that they can all get paid off uh, at the end of the show. But, like, I think when I first watched this show, I was, I was, I was, I was kind of thrown uh, at the end of this where there, there's one more wrench in Catra and Adora's sort of uh, relationship here thrown in right at the end by, by sort of shadow weaver. But I love how I, I love that scene at the very end in the, in the forest where Catra uh, decides to leave because she doesn't want to watch Adora do this. And it is, it's so fascinating here. We are on shadow weaver that she so easily slides into this old dynamic, but Adora and Catra kind of do too. And she's not 100% wrong that, like, Adora doesn't need to be the one to do this, but the way she manipulates everybody to get what she wants and the way she callously, like, hurts people and gets Adora to not pay attention to Catra, it's it's so, like, compelling but also heartbreaking to me. I really like watching Adora and Catra deal with the return of that dynamic because neither one of them is the same as they were when they were children. They've both changed a lot, but that manifests in different ways. Catra basically puts her foot down and says, this person hurts us, this person uses us. I'm not gonna put up with it anymore. And she'd rather leave. She'd rather leave than let the cycle continue. Adora chooses to stick around because 
rightly or otherwise, she thinks she's stronger now and can put up boundaries and resist Shadow Weaver. And the group also refers to Shadow Weaver as the lesser of two evils, which um, I really liked thinking about. Um, they acknowledge that they don't necessarily trust her. They don't. They 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 all agree that Shadow Weaver's out for a power grab, but they're going to sort of use the use the tools that they have before them, and that means choosing someone who's evil but not Horde Prime. Kind of reminds me of a certain uh, like presidential election that's maybe coming up. That's maybe the most political I got while thinking about this. Um, we have to kind of take our medicine and choose a candidate that. Maybe under other circumstances, we wouldn't want to. But if you got to fight the good fight, then that's all you have. What can you do? Right. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Shadow Weaver talk is, is, always, uh, is always a highlight. It's actually funny because we were talking uh, about that exact scene uh, last night when we were recording. It's, um, it's a really, really, like, it's a very powerful scene, I feel like, especially... Um, because I think Katra in that in that scene um, is kind of taking a moment and realizing um, at least a little bit that um, it's not just her like resentment of of Shadow Weaver and her resentment of like Adora being the one who's kind of the favored child in her eyes, but it's also her kind of realizing that a lot of um, the resentment she feels about it is because Adora is the one who's always got this onus of responsibility, this like mantle um, placed on top of her. And that's kind of always been the situation. Like um, throughout the show, there's a lot of times where, you know, Cashel um, will make a comment like you have to always play the hero. But I think in this scene, it kind of reveals a little bit that a lot of the emotions behind that are that, she doesn't want Adora to have to feel like she needs to be that. To dig into that a little deeper, I think you're absolutely right. Katra, in my opinion, wants to be chosen for once. Um, in her childhood, she was not the favorite of Shadow Weaver. She was not the best friend of really anybody except Adora. And Adora never chose her. Adora ran off and left the Horde. Katra took that very personally. And now, finally, I think for a moment, Katra thought, Adora's finally choosing me. We're finally going to be together, and I'm going to get what I want. And Adora, with her hero death wish, is instead going to choose saving everybody. And once again, Katra sees that maybe as a binary. Like, if Adora dies, Katra can't be with Adora. And so Katra is, again, not being chosen by the person she's seeking love from. I think that's a very good read on her. Yeah, she um, this uh, this thing that Catra has. I think there the uh, the idea of wanting to be chosen. I feel like in season four, it's important because back in season four, she's on top. She wins. Like she's dismantling the rebellion. She's in Hordak's good graces. She has all the power, and ultimately, she realizes that this isn't what she ever wanted at all. Like it's empty, uh, and, and she she just sort of starts, uh, you know, collapsing into this whirlwind of self destruction. Because ultimately, what she actually has wanted is is to be with Adora and stand with Adora this whole time. Um, and and, the, and these these sort of long held uh, 
emotional gnarls are, are still sort of catching both of them here, even at the end at the end of Failsafe. Uh, when Catra calls out Shadow Weaver, why does it have to be Adora? And then Shadow Weaver explains. I feel like the expression on Shadow Weaver's face, or like what we can tell of it, kind of her body language and whatever. I also think that she wants it to be her. Do you agree with that? Like, it seems like she would happily take this power. Maybe that's like a very simplistic thing to say, but because it's kind of obvious, but I think that she desperately wants to be, I don't know, the hero? It, it's certainly the most powerful, but maybe the hero in this case. Oh, Shadow Weaver? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely she wants to be the hero. She's. We've talked about this um, on our podcast. Shadow Weaver's whole deal is that she wants to be the best wizard that this planet has ever seen. She wants to be the most powerful magic user in history. And um, uh, so she often, she always uses other people as a like tool to get ahead as a way to bring herself glory, Um, which is always also why she takes everyone's any, any of her wards failures. So personally, because she has just sort of tied her own self-worth into both her and the success of whoever she is manipulating and using at the time. So, yeah, I guess I feel like she probably heavily resents Adora in this moment, right? Like, that's kind of the vibe I was getting from her explanation of why it has to be Adora. The group accuses her of having been here before. And so my read on that was she stood before the failsafe at some point and for one reason or another realized she wasn't strong enough. And whether that means she fears death or she just doesn't have as much power as she'd like, before we ever got to this episode, Shadow Weaver acknowledged that she's not good enough to do this. And that must just burn her up so bad. Yeah, yeah I, I think that a little bit it is kind of a fear of death. I think Shadow Weaver, especially when we're talking about like um, the the episode where... Oh, what is the name of the episode? Light Spinner. Um, in Light Spinner, when she's manipulating Micah and she's trying to to get um, the power, you know, that way, there's like you can you can tell that this is something that she could have attempted on her own, but there was a great personal risk to it, and there's a level of personal risk she just isn't willing to accept. Like you can't be the best wizard ever if you're dead. I'm glad you both mention Shadow Weaver's relationships with um, her previous sort of mentees and otherwise, because one of her big goals in this episode is to sort of separate Adora from Katra. She says Adora needs to be clear-headed and Katra is a distraction. And I, I wonder how accurate that is. I don't think it is. But it's what Shadow Weaver must see as true, because every relationship Shadow Weaver's ever had has broke bad on her. It's gone wrong. And so why would anyone else's relationships ever go well? She knows everything. We talk a lot about who deserves forgiveness on this show, and we get a lot of letters from listeners about like who should get a redemption arc, and why do we think so? Eric laughs, because he knows how I feel. Um, but... The, the, the most striking thing about Shadow Weaver in this episode, and the reason that I don't think she necessarily deserved a full-on redemption arc, is that she thinks her debt is paid, and she says she blames Micah for what happened to her. Yes. And I thought that was buck wild. She was like, well, that dark magic, at the deep magic, I would have gotten it if Micah hadn't broken, hadn't messed it up. And 
you see, you know, my face is all gnarled and shitty. I got what I deserved and now it's over with. She's not sorry. I wrote that down too. She is super ready to move on from her past misdeeds, but no one else is ready for her to do that. Yeah. And with, and with good reason, I think. <laughs> I always found it so funny that she blames Micah because, like, you're standing there, you're like 13 or whatever. Your professor has roped you into this dumb project, and it turns out her project involves summoning, like, nightmarish hell magic, um, and she expects you to not be extremely frightened and want to stop it, and so when she gets sucked in to the, you know, nightmarish hell magic, she's like, oh, it's all your fault. I was, I was fine. It would have gone fine if you just stayed there. Like, I don't know what your problem is, man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of here. I'm gonna consume the school's headmaster, and then I'm gonna leave. Did you guys notice that the statue of her in the background of this episode was burnt? The camera takes a, a moment to like focus on it to show that they sort of smeared her legacy. They like blacked out her image by charring up her statue. Or maybe she did it. I don't remember if we found out why that happened. But Light Spinner's statue's blown up. Oh, that's interesting. I actually didn't I don't remember that bit from the episode. I know that it is like when we see it in Shadows of Mystical for the first time. Yeah, it's it's in here too. This episode also, to, due to some of the things we're talking about, really made me question the credibility of Shadow Weaver's information in general. She has so much information in this episode about there is a failsafe. It was put there by traitorous first ones, and she knows all the details about how it's got to get absorbed into someone's body, and that person might die. And when she has such biased and flawed information about relationships and her own past, I think all of these characters should really take into question if they should listen to her or not. Like, how does she know what she knows? And is she right? She seems really biased. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. She, um, I mean, they, they do call her into question multiple times over the course of this episode, for sure, because... Yeah, I, I guess she just kind of wandered off. She wanders off towards the like beginning of this season. Like she just kind of vanishes for a while, and then comes back and tells Casaspella, "Hey, I figured it all out. Trust me." And uh, she does not trust her, even even slightly. <laughs> like even like she's really only willing to give her the time of day because there's not really a lot of other options. And I feel like that's where most of the cast is at this point in the show. Um, nobody is particularly willing to listen to her. Um, the only reason they are is because it's a matter of circumstance. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where even towards the end, um, when everyone kind of starts questioning her and, like, it becomes very obvious that she's withholding a lot of very critical information, you know, they're their patience only goes so far at this point. They're completely willing to just get rid of her at this point. Um, as soon as they find out that she's up to her old, uh, nonsense again. But of course the, the ultimate twist of the knife is that she's not wrong. You know, she tells Adora at the end of the episode, I did what I had to do. And, and I think that's like literally correct, but I, I agree with Lauren and with all of you that, like, the way that she goes about this, it, it makes it hard for me to root for her redemption on, like, a personal level. But as a viewer who's enthralled with her character, I still am very excited by her arc. 
Yeah, uh, her arc is her arc is very interesting. So Shadow Weaver is obviously the key example of somebody whose support is toxic and abusive and the worst. My favorite part of this episode is kind of the flip side of that that we see. And it's Bo supporting Entrapta as Entrapta tries to solve the chip problem. There's this really cute line where Entrapta is really excited and she says what she's working on and what she has to do. And Bo goes, you're a genius, Entrapta. Just keep working at it. So not only does he res- like compliment her and lift her up, but he also gives her sort of the space and resources that he knows that she needs to keep working. Like she's kind of going to fight the fight in the way that she knows how while they go off on a mission. And everyone in the rebellion just like on the same page. This is her strength. She's doing a great job and let's tell her so. Um, the rebellion in terms of their friendship, I think, is just doing really well in this one. So before we jump to the Entrapta subplot, I'd like to look at, yeah, like let's talk about the Rebellion in, in the A-plot specifically. So we know how Shadow Weaver works the Adora-Catra Weaver dynamic. How do you think Adora, uh, how do you think her response, like, measures up here? Because for a lot of this episode, I think she's, like, so supportive of, of Catra. You know, the line, she can't do anything to us anymore. It's really, really sweet. But as as things go on and as Catra starts to point out Adora's kind of like martyr complex, I, I wonder, you know, I wonder if Adora's totally got things worked out here. Yeah, it's like the thing with Adora in this episode is her the Atlas complex is coming out, right? It's she is torn between two kind of fundamental aspects of of herself. She um obviously she loves Catra very much she doesn't really she hasn't really internalized that yet uh obviously but she does and um but that's that's really extremely at odds with this um really deeply ingrained trauma response that she has to take on these mantles of responsibility um that are being placed on her um by circumstance and by you know parental figures in this case literally her you know mom figure um And, you know, when those two things are at odds, a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, the trauma response kind of wins out a little bit and you kind of fall into these these sorts of behaviors. And, you know, Katra is not somebody who's willing to to live with that anymore. And you can understand why she's going to remove herself from the situation for her own sense of safety and her own like her own well-being because she can't watch Adora essentially throw her life away because she's been told she has to. I almost kind of think that like Catra is is the the more relatable of the, of the characters here like watching her friend that she deeply cares about do this to herself and like rightly being very resentful of Shadow Weaver's manipulations like even though Adora is trying to be there for Catra like I think Catra knows pretty clearly what's going on and and is right to be uh to be put out by it as as per usual i'm gonna be a little harsh on our characters uh because they're fictional (laughs) but adora has a behavior in this episode that i don't think is a super healthy one and i've actually experienced in my own relationships in the past where she says a lot of really empathetic and supportive things like she can't hurt us anymore it's going to be okay but that support kind of stops 
once there's actual disagreement. Like, Catra basically puts her foot down and says, no, I don't think it's going to be okay. I don't think you're handling this the right way. I don't I don't want you to take the outcome you want to take. And suddenly, Adora's kind of acting like Catra's being a jerk, and Catra's getting in her way and holding her back. Um, obviously, you know, no spoilies, but they get through that. It's just not... Um, it's not real support. If you say it's going to be okay, but really what you're saying is it's going to be okay because we're going to do it my way and that's that, you haven't actually unboxed the other person's concerns. You haven't actually supported them. Right. Adora isn't really willing to listen to anyone else at this point. Like She's been told what she needs to do, and that's sort of the mode she's in. She's not going to listen to Katra or anyone else who's who's raising concerns about this failsafe thing because she's just in full on nope, I gotta do this mode. And and it I think the the important looking back on Katra's arc, it's so important to me that um in all of these situations where she's she's put in a place where she can either she can choose the right thing, she makes the wrong choice. This is consistent throughout the whole show. Um and I think Ultimately, at the end of this episode, I think she makes the right choice for herself here. Like at the end of all this, to to try to put her, you know, take herself out of this situation before it gets really, really bad. I agree with that. Look, okay, listeners, we are now all on Catra's side, right? Lauren, can I check in? Are you are you feeling Catra in this? Yes, uh, probably my favorite Catra episode. So don't at me. <laughs> no, I for sure though. I think she is uh she you're, that's absolutely right. She has always made the wrong choice and this time she she makes the right one and she tries to save her friend and then she tries to save herself. Of course we do all know how that works out. But I I respect where she's coming from a lot in this episode. Yeah, I I guess I'll I'll be the one contrarian and say that while I'm taking Catra's side, I also have an enormous amount of sympathy for where Adora is sitting. Um one of the things with her um, that I think is important um, to understand about why she is making the decisions she's making in this episode is that she doesn't see a viable alternative. There's not really somebody else who is capable of doing this task. You know, Shadow Weaver may be manipulating and she may be um, really just in this so that she can access uh, the heart for its magical potential and whatnot. But she's also not wrong in that nobody else is going to really survive this. Um, the best shot they have is She-Ra, and Adora's not really willing to let anybody else die for something that potentially she might survive. And if she doesn't, it was always her responsibility anyway, at least in her mind. I think that a lot of the, the conflict here where, you know, Katra and, and others, but mostly Katra, are trying to say that you don't have to do this, for Adora, a lot of that rings hollow because it's like, someone has to there's not you know this is the this is the 11th hour this is 11 59 p.m you know we're we're in the uh the last few seconds of the doomsday clock and nobody's got a plan and this is kind of the best that they've got so i i can understand a lot of where where a door is coming from here yeah, the one thing i'm uh, so i'm gonna admit that i'm a little shaky on the logistics of the failsafe Someone can correct me, and I hope they do. My understanding is either She-Ra will absorb all the magic of the heart of Etheria, 
or Shira will die and the magic will get dispersed throughout the planet. And Shadow Weaver definitely says, if you die, we'll still be able to defeat Horde Prime and everyone will be saved because we'll all have this magic. To me, it almost sounds like it's the intention then that the person is supposed to die. If the, if the idea is magic is freed and returned to the planet, if the person dies, why would we want one individual to survive and not return the magic to the planet? I don't really get it. But then I feel like that could have been fixed with like a little bit of Shadow Weaver rewrite or something. Like if we had Shadow Weaver literally say, but I'm afraid to die. I don't want to do that. Then I think I'd understand a little bit more what's going on here. So I think the way it works in theory is like, yeah, anyone else, anyone else who tries to do this would get incinerated like immediately by the sheer amount of magical energy at the heart of Etheria. Um, but the fact that Shira is a being of pure magic would mean that she could sort of act as a conduit to release that magic without getting uh, exploded immediately. Um, and that's not even a guarantee either. Even Shadow Beaver says, like, well, Shira, well, you could probably survive it. There's like a 75% chance that you'll be fine if you're Shira. Um, yeah. Like, the the way that I conceptualized it mostly was, like, you're you're essentially acting as, like, a fuse or whatever, and all of the energy is just flowing over you. Um, and Shira is just a very good fuse compared to a normal human being. Yeah, I, I want that to be the case. I remember the word absorb getting used, and that's what threw me. But if she's more of just a conduit, makes a lot more sense. My question about the failsafe is how much back and forth do you think the writer's room had about what to call it? Because the word failsafe probably gets said three dozen times in the script, if not more. <laughs> it, it's the kind of word that's kind of strange, so you remember hearing it so much. I wonder if they were like, oh, what if we call it, you know, this or that instead, and, and how they finally settled on failsafe. Not a question any of us can answer, but I did think about it. And I want you to know. <laughs> I feel like there's there's definitely like symbolism in that. I would have to I would have to think about it for a minute to like kind of figure out what that symbolism is. But it's there's a lot of things in the show that I feel like are fairly deliberate and I think that the choice to use the word failsafe probably has some significance. Safe especially, right? With like the Adora Catra arc feels like a a very loaded word now that you mentioned that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good it's read. Speaking before, I do want to talk about Entrapta's little little fun uh, adventure with Swiftwind here because I really like that part of the episode. But before we leave this uh, the a plot, I want to talk about something real quick um, because one thing that we have found going back to the show is that they love to use parallels. They love their dramatic parallels a lot, and one of the strongest in the whole show is in this episode. And it's and, and it's a very interesting parallel because this conversation Shadow Weaver has with Adora in the hallway of fire um, is and it is is basically a shot reverse shot of the conversation Angela and Adora have at the end of the portal because like the the composition even like the sort of colors are are very much you know mirroring each other and also the conversations themselves are mirroring each other very very heavily because they're both about. Adora wanting to step in and take a, a, a huge personal risk 
to to you know save everyone right in in the portal it's removing the sword from the portal so that it can close and in this episode it's taking on the fail safe um uh, the, the content of those conversations however uh, angela spends the entire thing reassuring like telling adora you matter beyond being shira you matter you you have worth as a person you have friends you deserve a future right uh, but in this episode, Shadow Weaver is telling Adora, you need to push all of this, all of these emotional bonds aside. They're distracting you. They're confusing you. And you need to focus on being the savior that Etheria needs. You need to be Shira. If you cannot be Shira, then what worth do you have here? And I think that's a very, very strong and, and powerful parallel between these two characters. Thank you for bringing up Angela, my queen and my favorite character. (laughs) (laughs) I did have one other note from the A story that plays off of that, which is like, what a fucked up situation for Glimmer to first see her dad in. Oh, Oh, man, I forgot this is the first time they saw each other. Yeah. Just heartbreaking. Uh, it, It is real rough, especially when he's, you know, acting like a real jerk due to the Horde Prime ship. Yeah, and, and the first time she sees him, she's cloaked, right? So he can't even see her, although it's kind Arguably, of Arguably, yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe they can sense the Milog magic, but yeah, that really, that was a gut punch for me. Casta, Casta puts an arm around her while she's sort of trembling, and that's just a small moment I noticed this time that I didn't notice last time. I really think it's sweet how Casta has tried her best to step in as a parental figure when Glimmer doesn't have any. Also the, the sisterly bickering between Castaspella and Shadow Weaver over who's going to tell the story and who tells it better is, I mean, Shadow Weaver's not necessarily comic relief, but that part was great. Oh yeah. I always, I always love when they, um, when they interact, they have, they have a really funny and, and uh, interesting dynamic. Tell us what you know about the fail safe. What makes you think it's in Mysticor? As any good sorcerer knows, Mysticor was built on the ruins of an ancient First One citadel. And beneath Mysticor... Can I tell this part? Go ahead. Beneath Mysticor, there are many secret tunnels and rooms, forgotten and sealed off. No one has been able to access them in centuries, but there are whispers of what they contain. An artifact known as the Crystal of Arxia, hidden there by a group of traitorous First Ones. You said I could do it! You were taking too long. So we should talk about the B story a little. There's not maybe too, too much substance, although I know that people's hearts were probably a flutter to see finally the Hordak and Traptor reunion. That's true. I do I do love the the Entrapta and Hordak friendship a lot. I think it's my favorite part of, of season two and three, I would have to say. Yeah, they have a really, really interesting dynamic. I, I love the way that, that they work as characters together. They're both this just these like these these incredible shut-ins they don't have a lot of ability to relate to other people but you know they see this like kindredness in each other and it really i feel like draws both of them out um in a way that's very beneficial for both of them agree and also something uh you know lauren mentioned earlier about how Bo was kind of like wholeheartedly embracing entrapta i feel like this plot here is we like genuinely see Entrapta trying so hard just for her friends. Like there's not even a question at this point that it's not about the tech, it's about the friendship. And I thought that was like a real moment of growth for her to 
to be going after this, uh, you know, this very dangerous mission just because she cares about people. So yeah, my, that was definitely a large, a large growth moment for sure. My number one ship, I think, in this entire show, now that we're nearing its completion, is Mara and Light Hope, and they're not really a thing in this episode. <laughs> my number two ship is uh, Entrapta and Hordak, and. I really appreciate how cheesy it is. I found the, like, especially Keston John's delivery in the scene between Hordak and Entrapta to be, like, very Shakespearean and very over the top, but I was just locked in for it. I have subscribed to this newsletter. The way he's like, what have you done to me? Uh <laughs> Maybe maybe if you disappear, these imperfections will leave me. And she's like, whoa, <laughs> your imperfections are beautiful. And she's being, like, dragged away. The melodrama is so high. And I like seeing that, I mean, I don't know. Like is too vague a word. Like is too generic. But I'm fascinated by what Hordak has become when he's not Hordak anymore. This, like, what, this, this, like, Romeo, like, why is my heart doing this? Like, why do I have to deal with so much pain? It is high angst. And it, it works, though, for these two characters, right? Because they are kind of, like, isolated and have difficulty communicating. I buy it in a way that, like, I know I've commented on the kind of Natasa Spinarella. Like, Spinarella gets a couple lines. Or, I'm sorry, Natasa gets a couple like scene punctuating lines in season five that I find are just like a little too much, a little too emo, but I have none of those objections with this scene. Like it, to me, it's exactly what these characters would do. Oh yeah. And like, you know that I was really here for those lines between Natasha and uh, Spinarella too. Like for some reason, maybe this is just where I'm clocked in, but the emo stuff, I'm just like, yes, turn on the dashboard, turn on the Coheed and Cambria. It's I'm here. Let's do it. I like that people think of Coheed as emo, and I'm not just trying to come on, come down on you because it's a common classification. Do you know that their first like five albums are about like a space station in like the multiverse or something? <laughs> it's like this weird sci-fi story that somehow Patrick Ewing ties into. Uh, yeah, but it's like an emo space station, right? Yeah, yeah, an emo <laughs> space. It is. The, the guns is. on it are sad. Just like yeah. in Starkiller Base, sad guns. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else anyone wants to add about this episode? Uh, there's a couple little things. Notably for me, uh, I noticed that Bo reaches out to Glimmer to kind of comfort her while they're both sleeping next to each other, which Lauren keeps telling me that, like, I need to be looking for signs of something happening between these two. I I don't know. What, what do you... <laughs> I still don't buy it, guys. Yeah, I'm sure absolutely nothing comes of that. It's there's, it's probably nothing. That's all. It's, it's, there's nothing going on there. Just don't look too closely at it. Just like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really see anything there. I don't know. Speaking of cuddles, uh, I really like how Milag betrays Catra's true feelings. Milag is really the embodiment of Catra's emotions. When um, I don't remember even what what scene it's in, but it's it's like Catra's like, well, it's not because I like you. But then Milag like cuddles Adora and kisses her, and it's clear that Milag is showing what Catra's feeling on the inside, and I think that's adorable. Yeah, it's really really cute. I actually I love the introduction of Milag as this like 
conduit for her emotions. It it leads to some really interesting stuff. Um, some really like deep character interrogation um, that uh, that you guys will get to uh, next episode. But uh, but yeah, oh. it's it's some very very fun stuff. I do love Milog. I I love the addition to the cast. I find Milog's invisibility power to be like really op and just sort of written to be whatever the cast needs it to be but it came it came late enough in the show that i'm willing to like let it slide <laughs> oh, they're, they're up against horde prime they gotta break out all the stops they gotta get the high level gear they gotta get the like max level mounts for this stuff you can't be <laughs> you can't be playing by the rules when you're fighting an infinite galactic horde I just yeah the limiter, the limiter is off <laughs> I want to flash back to season two when Lauren said that Glimmer's uh, blinking power was OP. And in last episode, she teleports from the rebel camp to the fright zone and neither of us said anything about it. It was fine. Well, the, the Glimmer is so funny because in, in the early episodes, she is very powerful and her teleportation is very powerful. But due to her like half connection to the runestone, it really limits it. And then as soon as Angela is out of the picture, she becomes completely busted. Like she's wildly powerful in season four and beyond. Yeah, I'm, I was willing to accept it because of her sort of inheritance of the runestone, but it is a little bit like last season Game of Thrones, where Daenerys is on the dragons and is like suddenly around the world in 30 seconds. They just, they need to tell the story. It's fine. So maybe a good kind of closing question for the episode. We've been talking about these characters in, in RPG terms. If there was a She-Ra RPG video or tabletop, which character would you, like, which princess would you want to play? Who do you think you'd have the most fun as, or who would be the most powerful? For me, this is so obvious, but I would say Perfuma, just because I love the, like, elemental plant mancers. I've actually... I know it's kind of problematic, but I've been replaying the South Park tactical RPG, The Fractured But Whole, and as soon as you unlock the plant powers, like, that game just opens wide up, and it's the dopest. So, for 100% Perfuma for me. I would definitely... So, assuming this game kept to, like, the core princesses, I think I'd want to play as Mermista. Um, the water powers, I think, would be especially interesting in sort of the unconventional ways, how we see her bring, like, water up from the sewers... The idea of finding water in surprising places, I think, would be really fun to play with. However, if we get to pick from, like, anybody, Micah in this episode just cracked open some powers that I was really shocked by. He's always throwing around fire. He's always throwing up shields. But he busted out the dark magic, the, like, creepy shadowweaver tentacle magic in this one. And... I have this headcanon now that ever since he was a child and had that incident with Shadow Weaver, he's had access to dark magic and he could tap into it and he's just chosen not to because it was evil. And man, the role play there would be amazing if that is if that's what I'm supposed to be getting here. You know, I like, you know, depending on what kind of if we're talking like an action RPG or something, I always like to play sort of uh, the, the the characters who hit really really hard. I like a good I like a good impact character. So I feel like I'm gonna be boring. I'm gonna pick Shira because one of the things I love about how Shira fights in this show, she does not use her sword very often. She just mostly punches and chucks people around like they're rag dolls, and I love that. 
Yeah, she's kind of a D&D fighter who just incidentally happens to have a sword sometimes. And really, it's more of a bludgeoning tool than anything. Yeah, I guess it's the sword is almost more like an artifact than a weapon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially now that it doesn't really exist and it only pops up <laughs> when she transforms. Yeah. That's super true. Yeah, I feel like I feel like for me, I would definitely go for Glimmer. She's got like the the paladin thing going on. She is she is a caster, but she is in it to uh, be as in the face as possible um, and just really hammer people. Um, it's it's really it's a really fun like play style. I feel like just get in there and tank it, and then take. Uh, that sort of like combination tank DPS situation is pretty cool. Right. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta play armor glimmer with her armor from battle of bright moon, which I still think looks super sick. Oh yeah. That's my favorite glimmer skin. It bums me out that they didn't bring back any of those armors. They were so toyetic in the best way and they just looked so cool. I'd love to get a a figure of armor glimmer. If they would sell it, I would buy one. Yeah. You know, We got a letter from a fan recently that was saying how at the beginning of the DreamWorks Shira, Eric and I were talking about how excited we were because we were so sure there was going to be all these toys. It was going to be this great merchandising opportunity. And the, the I don't have the letter in front of me. Nathan. Nathan H. Great. Well, Nathan H. is going to be really disappointed because Nathan's question was, why do you think there wasn't this renaissance of Shira toys? And like, other than the fact that maybe it's on Netflix and there's just not a super huge amount of like, with the exception of maybe Stranger Things, there's not, not a huge amount of like Netflix merch out there. I don't know. I don't know why there wasn't a huge toy push. I'm so bummed there was not a Shadow Weaver that was mass market available. Like if you didn't get the SDCC, you couldn't get a Shadow Weaver. Sad face. The, wow, that is the, so sad. It is sad. The sort of death of the Toyetic cartoon is a very interesting thing. They they still exist for sure. Like I mean, Transformers has been going for a while, and every single one of those shows is is uh, accompanied by like a just a, a a nuclear blast of plastic every single time. But I feel like a lot of shows that get big nowadays aren't Toyetic. At all, like I don't, I don't think this show is particularly toyetic. Other than those, those armors did stand out because I was like, this, this seems like I should be able to buy it a figure of, right. of this. <laughs> um, like, it's, and I, I mean, I don't even like all of. I think the the Shira armor design looks a little bit clunky. I don't really like it, uh, but I would get a bow and glimmer armor. Um, you know, sell a Swiftwind with horse armor and all that sort of thing. But like. The show never really got a big merchandising push at all. And, and really, I don't think it had a, a big advertising push either. I feel as though it almost succeeded in, uh, by its own merit in spite of DreamWorks not necessarily um, pushing a lot of stuff for it. Just to call back both Nero and Lauren, you guys are talking about Netflix marketing and Transformers. So there is a new Transformers show coming to Netflix uh. in a couple weeks. Um, I, I actually I, – so I love Transformers – I don't think this show looks very good. <laughs> it looks super toyetic to me. Like the models look like action figures that were, it looks like Team America or something, you know? 
Um, but what is fascinating is that all of the figures in that show, they have been previously released as part of the, like, War for Cybertron toy line, but are now getting re-released in their show-accurate colors as Walmart-exclusive Netflix versions. <laughs> so, huh. not only did this show get one toy line, it got double toy lines with only enough content for one. Huh. That's a that's, little weird. That's wild. Yeah, I, I also am a big Transformers fan, but I just have... I don't have any interest in this War for Cybertron stuff. I think the the animation looks... It gives me flashbacks to the Machinima shows, and that's not a good thing to remind me of when you're trying to sell me on a show to watch. Because 100%. Those shows looked like garbage. Um, and, and like... Oh, please, go ahead. Sorry. And, and also, like I, I don't know, just like the tone of it is so... Like, self-serious, which is not really what I want. From I like, we we were actually talking about this on 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 our most recent episode. This sort of balance shows like this have to do where you need to take your characters' emotions seriously and like the characters themselves seriously. But if you take everything so deathly serious, especially in a show that's based on you know where 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 uh, old kids' cartoons with you know characters with names like. You know, Adora or Catra or Thundercracker or Ultra Magnus. <laughs> you can't make, you can't try to sell me an uber serious war story with these like puppeteered toys on screen and, and think that I'm going to be able to, uh, you know, get in, get invested in this. My favorite Transformers show is, uh, Transformers animated. I think it's the best TV show that they've ever put out. Um, and that and that really does hit that perfect balance of having enough humor about the things that are happening and then the world in general that it is not bogged down in in just high wretched like drama, you know. I completely agree. You know, obviously, I grew up on G1, and to me, animated was kind of it fulfilled the G1 promise because G1 was like unintentionally goofy. Uh, but it tried to be serious. The animated just leaned into that. It's like it honors things that came before. I think kind of similar to She-Ra. Like, okay, there's a couple villains. Like, Megatron and Shockwave are like, okay, you don't want to mess with them. But most of the other characters are, like, good for a little laugh here and there. Like, they all kind of are winking at, as to the, the self-seriousness of the property, right? Oh, and for I, sure. I appreciate that. Not to, like, bring politics in in the 11th hour, but it's this is what this is making me think of. With everything that's like going on in the real world right now, from a global pandemic to police brutality, I think I wholeheartedly co-sign the death of the gritty reboot. I think the gritty reboot and the self-serious shows had a place in America when everything was going really well, or at least we on a daily basis got to feel like things were going where, well. We, where we were ignoring the, the grim realities of most of our countrymen, yes. Yeah, frankly, yeah. Guilty. I mean, guilty, it's true. Um, and now I don't want to... I don't want to live in a fantasy world where everything is just as shitty and grim and negative as what we're all living through every day. Like, it's not funny anymore it's not cute to do that i completely agree and like i'll admit that the first reason i was turned off of war for cybertron was because whoever's voicing optimus is clearly doing a peter cullen impression but it's not peter cullen yeah but the more right but then the more i watch just the get trailer, him just get him he d- he's done it for years and the more i watch the trailer you're right it looks so unfun it's exactly puppeteer toys and i 
I don't know. I've got my more than meets the eye comics. I've got Transformers animated on DVD. That's that's all I need to be happy. And we've got this new She-Ra that was not the gritty reboot, which I'm worried Masters of the Universe Revelations is going to be, but oh. time will tell. No, I think I think I've written that thing off. Like as soon as I saw who was involved in the way that they were sort of taking the the, the direction of the writing for that show, I was like, oh, you're just gonna like, you're just gonna make everything super serious and like. I, I'm not interested in a super serious He-Man reboot. Yeah, if anything, I, I want. No, oh, go ahead, Jane. I was gonna say I can't imagine enjoying the uh, the super deadly serious like angst of Prince Adam and his and his like toiling with with the mantle of He-Man. I mean, you're right. Like characters are called like Clawful, right? Like where <laughs> is the where is the uh, this graveness in this? Anyway. Maybe we'll maybe we'll all be wrong. Maybe we'll all be pleasantly surprised. We I mean, I, we rarely yeah. are wrong here on this show, but maybe this time. Yeah, I mean, maybe Orko is going to get like the most deep character study um, ever in any show. <laughs> There's a, a DC comic where Orko is like the evilest character in the multiverse, and he gets tired of people making fun of him, so he decides to end all life in the universe. It's really bad. Oh wow. my uh, god. Anyway. <laughs> um, this it was so great talking with you, Jane and Nero. Can you please tell our listeners where they can find you? Because I know that people will want to go back and experience the show again. Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, that's what our that's what our uh, podcast is kind of made for. We structure it so that, like, we we just we just take the episode as it is, and and anything before it, like, we just we just up to date on the episode, and then we have a spoiler zone where we just kind of go deep into the reverberations and and concepts that come back up later in the show so that even if you're either watching it for the first time or have someone you're watching it for the first time with, they won't get spoiled if they don't want to be. Um, but you can find the podcast of power uh, on Twitter at podcast of power. Uh, we also have a Tumblr, which I believe is, is pot of power.tumblr.com. Um, we post, you know, question posts or before we record, we have a curious cat where you can sort of just drop any questions you have about the episode or She-Ra in general. Um, if you want to follow me, I guess you can find me, uh, over at, at dragon smoocher on Twitter. Love yeah. it. And you can, uh, find me at, at Jane on, uh, Twitter as well. Well, welcome to the world of Shira podcasting. We're so happy you're here, and it's it's really cool that like your show it it is like we were the first watch. We didn't know what was coming, and now you're taking up the mantle of like, okay, we know everything. Like, let's really dive in. And I'm so impressed with the insightfulness of of your uh, your analysis, and I, I'm excited to keep listening. So, thank you very much. Well, thank oh, you for thank this you. opportunity to you know give us a platform, and we get to talk about one of my favorite episodes of the show for sure. Yeah, thank you very much. This was this was a lot of fun. I did have one more note about this episode, and it's going to be just a total curveball. And it was funny to Great. me, but having a security system where some of the fire is illusory and some of the fire is real <laughs> is very weird. Weirdest security system ever, you guys. Listen, that's, that's just wizards. That's just wizards. They fucking complicate everything. <laughs> you can never trust a wizard. One of our episodes is called that, and it's true. Never trust a wizard. Quick, quick, any wizards listening, you don't have to listen to their show. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. <laughs> Whoa. I'm going to say they should listen and think about what they've done. <laughs> listen to your heart.
Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.